Last week, we talked about this idea of suffering as an inevitability. You know, in the, in the modern Western world, suffering is often seen as uh, basically just an interruption to be avoided at all costs. The idea is that suffering is so awful and have, there's nothing that you could possibly gain from it. The best thing that you can do is mitigate it and avoid it at uh, any cost. So if the great goal of American existence is life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, what is to be done when suffering robs you of all three? When you can no longer experience life, liberty, or the pursuit of happiness because of great suffering. And the scriptures present this very different take on suffering altogether, that though God does not ordain, he does not determine evil or suffering, he doesn't like it, but he is infinitely intelligent and creative, and he can take even the things that he doesn't want to happen, and he can use those things for good. And suffering then can become a unique moment in our lives where we grow or where we're matured or we, we know God more deeply and uh, we're, we're of more use in God's kingdom. And ironically or counterintuitively, they can be opportunities for us to have more peace or to have more joy than before we had suffered. So if suffering is inevitable, even when we mitigate it, how does a follower of Jesus prepare for suffering? How do we find meaning and purpose in our suffering? How do we allow suffering to mature rather than to destroy us? Yeah, and tonight we're going to continue that conversation. We're going to use First Peter as a case study, uh, and Josh and I are going to share a bit about how we've found meaning uh, in our own suffering. So, you ready? Okay, you better get ready. It's like Bible drill time. <laughs> Get your, get your Bibles ready, y'all. Come on. Now, uh, a bit of background on the text before we get right into First Peter tonight. So follow, imagine this. Following the resurrection of Jesus, the church had begun to spread out from the epicenter of Jerusalem. More and more people were coming to faith in Jesus. They were planting more churches. They were starting new communities throughout the ancient Mediterranean. But just as Jesus warned them, what began as this exciting new way of life where it was filled with the miraculous and all kinds of new ways to be in community um, in partnership with the kingdom of God, many of these small disparate communities were now facing hardship and persecution. And they became understandably concerned. Did they make the right decision when they took up with this Jesus guy? Had they chosen a false Messiah? If not, why in the world would they be suffering the way that they were? After all, wasn't this supposed to be like the last days, you know, in the first century? <laughs> Hadn't Jesus already ushered in the kingdom of God? Why were the pagans still ruling the empire? Why wasn't Jesus on the throne if he was the real Messiah? What's the holdup, man? And, and what's worse, their confusion had been compounded by the constant mockery of those outside the church or just outright persecution from the state. Did they need new teachers? Had they missed something? Um, had they made a terrible mistake altogether? And it's into this situation that Peter drafts two letters. Now, for Peter... This absolutely earth-shattering events of the last few decades, you know, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the giving of the Holy Spirit on all disciples of Jesus, the rise and spread of what became the early Christian movement, none of these things were like entirely new concepts straight out of left field uh, in history. Rather, they were all the fulfillment of God's great age-old plan to rescue the world, albeit in very surprising ways. So Peter writes this letter of uh, reassurance based on the whole of scriptures, that the story of the Bible details God's re rescuing purpose for the cosmos via his chosen Messiah, who is Jesus of Nazareth. And again and again, Peter's letter points back to Jesus. Hold on to the death and the resurrection of Jesus, he says. Let it be your anchor, he says. Jesus is the true Messiah. He is the true king, and one day he will be revealed to all the world as such. This is the truth, so stand firm in it. In the midst of your suffering, know peace in the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done and what he will do. And from the text, too, we see that while Peter may not give a comprehensive explanation for why good people suffer sometimes, he is able to say that God knows about suffering and provides hope amidst the pain. Peter doesn't try to explain away the suffering uh, that people are experiencing, but instead he tells us how to find meaning in it and how to endure it in a way that will change us and change us for the better. He unequivocally points to the fact that God wants to reveal himself in really tangible ways to us through every area that we suffer. 
And he says uh, that when we do suffer, when God's presence does come near, he calls this a grace of God to us, a kindness of God uh, to us. And Peter does this beautiful job uh, throughout the book of um, pointing the readers and us to Jesus. He keeps him right at the center, reminding them and us, and even reiterating the reality that Jesus, through the demonstration of his life and his death, not only empathizes with us, but has experienced the same pain and ultimately faced uh, the most um, the worst suffering that he could possibly have suffered, only to come through it totally resurrected and perfected in every uh, single way. Uh, so the text is clear. Suffering is inevitable. We keep, I think we keep tooting that horn, at least Bridgetown. Tooting here. the horn. We're tooting okay. that horn all the time. Um, but we believe it's not willed by God. And even so, it shouldn't be something you run from. Instead, the book that we're reading, First Peter, invites us to embrace the suffering we encounter past, present, and future for the purpose of being formed and knowing Jesus better, which is entirely and wonderfully good. So with all that in mind, let's read uh, in chapter 1, beginning with the very first verse. So he opens by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus the King, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And then skip down to verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus the Messiah. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus the King is revealed. So right away, Peter sets to work reminding a suffering people who they really are. In fact, he addresses them in the same breath as one, God's elect or, or God's people, and as exiles. Because though they live in one place, they simultaneously belong to another place, God's new world waiting to be re revealed in full. And Peter is reminding the recipients of this letter who they are apart from ancestry and genetics and social status or their personal backgrounds. And as Peter's letter carries on, we realize two important factors from the outset. First, that Peter hasn't for a moment imagined that, the things, uh, these, that things should go easy for these new followers of Jesus, or that they will always win the respect of their neighbors, or that they will always be treated fairly by the governing authorities. Far from it, actually. Instead, disciples of Jesus are, in a sense, called to suffer, or suffering is inevitable for the follower of Jesus, and even to suffer greatly, or even to suffer unjustly. And this is a pattern that's based on the life of Jesus himself. And we also see that from the beginning of the letter, Peter assumes that suffering is, is to be expected, not just an inevitability, but one on the immediate horizon, whatever that looks like. It's also to be expected that suffering can be meaningful and used for good. And so Peter is inviting his readers to, in a way, hope in their suffering. More than merely an interruption of life's happiness, suffering compels God's people to hope in the future of the resurrection of the dead and the renewal of all things. Not just white-knuckle it and wait for this whole thing to go to pot, but to find meaning in the here and now, in your life, as it's unfolding, in your suffering. Somehow, through the process of grief and trials, the authenticity of your faith is revealed. Yeah, so let's turn over to chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 18 through 20 first. He says, slaves. Yeah. In reverent fear of God, submit yourself so yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. 
Now, there's a lot that could be said uh, about these verses, but there are a few key things I want us to understand. First, it's important uh, that uh, we read this for what it's actually communicating. There's a temptation, at least for me when I'm reading this, um, to discredit myself or to move on pretty quickly because he addresses the group as slaves. And so I'm like, well, not really. Moving on. You know, and I just kind of like scoot past that. And some of y'all might be like, well, I, okay. Um, but for me, uh, it's something I can generally bypass because I'm like, that's an old thing. This is a new thing. Anyway, um, but, but I just want to draw your attention to just slow down and listen because Peter's pointing to something more here in the text. In the ancient world, uh, virtually everything accomplished uh, today by electricity or gas or engines was carried out by slaves. And quite a few uh, disciples of Jesus themselves were slaves. Peter then addresses them specifically, inviting even abused slaves to find meaning in their suffering. And I think there's something uh, really important here, as we know that slavery itself, uh, let alone the abuse of slaves, are both concepts not at all in keeping with the way of Jesus. And yet Peter seems to think that even so, followers of Jesus who ought not uh, ought not to be slaves at all and certainly should not be abused, yet can embrace in their suffering meaning. And, and so Peter's like, listen, I know that you're, this is a hard thing, a crazy thing. You're, some of you are even slaves, and I'm speaking to you. This unjust pain you're enduring, I'm still calling Jesus' way calls you to look beyond your circumstance and to trust him for something more. Now, I want to be really clear. Peter isn't recommending that people remain silent while suffering violence. Um, instead, he's calling us and the readers to view and embrace unjust suffering as a horrible as it is, or could be like slavery. It's a place where God's grace or kindness can be found. Uh, if you look at verse 19, there's a word, at least in the NIV, commendable. And it's used to show honor uh, to those who suffer greatly or specifically unjustly. And in the Greek, uh, this word commendable can be translated grace. Um, and grace here is defined as a kindness of God that keeps, strengthens, and increases one in their faith, knowledge, and affection. So, so Peter slows it down here and he says it's not commendable. We can read and go like, yeah, it's a nice word. It's a clean word. But Peter's saying it's so much more than that. There's a grace given to you, those who are suffering uh, in this unjust way. Um, it's a beautiful picture. So let's, let's jump down uh, to verses 21 through 24. We'll read that real quick. Um, to this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself, uh, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. As we read this part of the text, um, we're left uh, with what a lot of scholars say, we're, we're left without excuse or excuses. Peter knows that there's a real temptation when we're suffering, particularly unjustly, to excuse um, behavior that is self-indulgent and vindictive. And in these verses, Peter calls it all into the light, and he says in so many words, if you follow Jesus, you don't get to have an excuse for your bad behavior or your retaliation. He beautifully highlights for us the injustice that Jesus endured, this ultimate example, while reminding us that he was and is imitating the way that we should confront unjust suffering. The imagery in the Greek of that word example is that of a rabbi and apprentice, and we use that language all the time. Um, but this is to help the, the reader, those who would have been reading this text, understand that he's talking about this discipline in the way of following Jesus, that it's going to require for you to put to death things in yourself that you would be one and identified with Jesus. Jesus himself did not retaliate when faced with great injustice, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. This is the definition of what it means to suffer well and to do it with integrity. Let's turn to... Chapter 3, look at the next motif of suffering in First Peter. So as, as Peter continues on with this strong theme of suffering and the suffering of God's people, he draws the reader's attention to the unfortunate reality of suffering for good. So suffering is a complicated enough thing to wrap your head around, but, but consider for a moment the premise of suffering for doing the right thing. And then look down at chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. 
He writes, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it's better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So Peter quotes Isaiah 8 when he says, do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. And he's encouraging uh, this community of disciples of Jesus to anticipate persecution without fear. And from there, he sets to work drawing an interesting contrast between the often painful consequences of sinful behavior and the often painful consequences of pursuing the way of Jesus. But think about this for a moment. Ordinarily, we would imagine it more appropriate to suffer for doing evil than to suffer for doing good. But here, Peter deliberately reverses the assumption. And in context, Peter writes an encouragement to those likely to suffer injustice at the hands of the state or the governing authorities. And when this happens, they're not only like Jesus himself, but they might take comfort in the knowledge that Jesus will have ultimate victory over every authority, even over spiritual authorities, beings that the scriptures call principalities or powers or, or things that you and I might call angels or demons in today's language. And even in the midst of injustice, uh, of a corrupt empire, Jesus still remains the true king. And one day, he will be known in full as the true king, his reign extending over every square inch of the cosmos. And Peter is inviting these communities to stand firm trusting that God's victory will one day be played out in the world completely, though now they suffer, to face, to face this suffering and this persecution without fear. Yeah. Um, okay, chapter 4. Turn with me. Well, I don't have an actual Bible up here, but... Scroll with Scroll you. with me. On over. We're going to start in verse 12. Let's read it. Uh, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Jesus, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should be not as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for the judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what the outcome uh, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if, and if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Here again, Peter reminds the reader that they shouldn't be surprised at the suffering that they're facing, that it's certainly not a strange thing. And uh, in verse 19, when Peter writes, those who suffer according to God's will, remember, don't equate the word will with the word control. A better way to read that line would be, those who suffer the way God teaches us to suffer, not uh, the way God wants you to suffer. Peter seems a little bit redundant, at least as you're reading this book, and there's so much, Josh and I were talking about, there's so much we want to say from each of the passages, we just got to keep it short, but there's so much to be said in this, but he seems a little bit redundant, he keeps saying to them over and over again, don't be surprised uh, at this suffering, and as I was thinking about that, I, I imagine that in, that in the back of the reader's minds, they might have more accurately been thinking, uh, as Josh alluded to a little bit earlier, why would the powerful Messiah who was raised from the dead still allow periods of suffering for his people? People, uh, for the people who have suffered greatly at his name. Why would he allow that? Which is a question I think a lot of us have asked um, before. But it's so cool because in this verse, uh, in these verses, Peter turns the reader's paradigm for suffering on its head. And he says that suffering is and should be considered what he calls a blessing, which I rarely feel when my whole world's falling apart. Some of you are spiritual, and you do feel that way, but I have never felt that way when uh, things were tough. Speak he, for yourself. <laughs> mm -hmm, right. Uh, uh, he even says that we're to rejoice uh, when strange things are impacting 
uh, our life. So Peter helps us out because it's a struggle. My friend says, people are caught up in a struggle. I'm like, that's where I am right here. I get caught up in a struggle. Peter helps us out a little bit in verse 15. And there he highlights the dichotomy of suffering at the expense of uh, our own sin and suffering for our loyalty to Jesus. And I don't want you to get lost in the loyalty language and think, well, this was them under the Roman Empire. It was really gnarly, really whatever. We, too, suffer for our loyalty uh, to Jesus. And that, that can manifest in a lot of ways where we've said no to certain things that we need to say no to, yes to things that we need to, to do. And all of it can feel really sticky. And it's because we're yielded to Jesus that we've made these decisions. So we're not outside uh, of this camp either. He helps us to see, Peter does, that there's a huge difference in the two, suffering for the, your own sin and suffering for Jesus. Um, when we suffer for our criminal acts or for being murderers or meddlers or whatever, um, there's always uh, shame involved. It's always laced and rooted really deeply, but when, um, which by the way is a really crappy and hopeless way to suffer. And we know people who are experiencing that. When we suffer for our loyalty to Jesus, um, we're not without, as Peter says, the grace that he talks about, that thing that spurs us on to keep going, that provides everything we need to walk through it. We're not without that. Um, so he says for the follower of Jesus, suffering can highlight uh, too, what, what Paul calls the foolishness of God. So when we suffer, we get to display who Jesus really is to those who are watching, while also allowing uh, the believer to know uh, and participate in the way that Jesus himself suffered. He speaks a lot of this participation with Christ and his suffering. And this kind of suffering obviously is rooted in glory, uh, which means there's room and reason to celebrate. So Peter's like not absurd in asking people to consider this a blessing or not crazy in saying you should rejoice in this because he's saying you for a moment get to, to just for a tiny, and just get a tiny glimpse into what it meant for Jesus himself to suffer. And if we are thinking rightly, even though things are really gnarly and hard, this is a gift and this is a reason uh, to celebrate. Because without it, we probably wouldn't have been able to identify with Christ that way. So Paul, that apostle who wrote a bunch of books in the New Testament, he really got this. And he's like almost shouting it in the book of Philippians. Um, you can hear the passion and gusto he has when he says, That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Uh, this is what Paul is talking to. He's pointing back to this idea of participation uh, in suffering, identifying with Jesus. Um, and he's saying it's a gift to you that you would get to participate. So for the disciple of Jesus, suffering this way because of our loyalty to Jesus actually becomes a badge of honor in God's upside-down kingdom. So let's complete the motif of suffering in uh, 1 Peter with one more passage. So turn over to chapter 5. And let's read one more time, beginning in uh, verse 8. Chapter 5, verse 8, he writes, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to, to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And so as Peter draws this letter to a close, he compels the reader's attention to the one who orchestrates and stewards evil, suffering, and injustice. And in this sense, it is the devil or a spiritual being that the Bible depicts as a personified entity at war with God who works to the detriment of all that is true and good in God's world. And in Peter's letter, he talks about a dangerous lion who goes around looking for someone to eat. And Peter, deeply aware of the suffering of these followers of Jesus, draws their attention away from even the visible human opponents of the church, the state, the empire, whoever it might have been. And he invites them instead to recognize the real source behind even human evil. And it isn't God's mysterious plan. Uh, it's, it's a very real enemy, the devil. Yeah, and even so, he says, the devil can be resisted. Um, while the persecuted followers of Jesus stay the course, even in their pain, even as the church itself acro suffers across the world, 
Peter beautifully maintains that civil behavior, acting with respect and gentleness, will again and again win the attention of outsiders, even if they don't understand what in the world you've gotten yourself into with all this Jesus stuff. And there is redemption in suffering. You know, often following a near-death experience, an individual confronting their own mortality uh, seems prone to reevaluate their, their life. So when you face the fragility of life, you get a clearer picture of what matters and what doesn't matter. And in the same way, when one suffers for the way of Jesus, they stand to attain a new kind of clarity. They might see more sharply the reality of a world that's fractured by sin. Um, by humanity rejecting God and opting to rule over their own lives instead. And when you see evil for what it is, you become exasperated by it. You're done with it. The way of Jesus comes more into focus as the only road worth taking. Those suffering will inevitably, inevitably find you when you walk the road. These followers of Jesus are in a position to identify suffering as something like a road sign confirming that they are indeed heading in the right direction. Jesus has gone this way. You are going where he went, so keep going. This is the way. Like Jesus, we prepare for the days when we will suffer as we walk the road, but we keep to the path, ready to be made strong as we go it. Yeah, so what do we do with all of this? I mean, we just, we hammered out the book of First Peter in like five seconds. It probably didn't feel like five seconds to you, but... It's pretty fast, and most people would be really impressed. Um, it was a lot. It's a lot to cover. There's so much that we missed. And earlier, I grabbed the, the thing that was falling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so where do we find ourselves in this? You know, we talked about different kinds of suffering and some of the exhortations that Paul, or, well, he too, but Peter, um, calls us to in uh, and through this book. What does it mean for those of us who are sitting in the room finding ourselves uh, in, in the same place as some of these other people. This letter from Peter is no doubt encouraging to read. In fact, it's one of my absolute favorite books uh, in the whole of Scripture, uh, especially as it highlights suffering as something in which we find hope and honor and integrity and redemption. That's why I love the book. He's kind of screaming out to us, the reader, there is hope in all of this. Uh, but to some of us tonight, those are, and I've been there, uh, I really have been there, they're just letters on a page, or we're just people speaking words from uh, a stage. And for others of you, uh, this is your life uh, right now, or uh, it will be soon enough. And as Josh and I sat down um, to write this teaching, uh, we felt it was really important that we find Peter's words in our own stories and that we share those with you, um, the times where we've experienced um, the same, these kind of same things uh, through uh, our times of great pain. Yeah, you know, and my uh, example was quite easy. I've talked to you guys about this before, but I've lived something of a, a charmed life with no great, you know, uh, moment of tragedy to point to uh, until a few years ago. You know, in the winter of 2013, my parents decided to leave Georgia long enough to visit the, the Pacific Northwest for the first time, which is a big thing for them. Uh, both my brother and I had just had our first kids. They were eager to meet the, you know, the grandbabies, and they wanted to celebrate Christmas uh, as this newly expanded family. So they arrived uh, in the holiday season. They held the grandkids. They explored and complained about the local culture nonstop. You know? um, my dad had this long ZZ Top beard for which he received many compliments, actually. And, and, uh, and the fact that he was hip here didn't sit well with him at all. He was like, why are these people telling me I look good? And uh, the, the Crocs that he wore at all times helped balance things out. I'm sure a lot of the uh, hip fellows thought that he, maybe he's, this guy's onto something. These Crocs are comfortable. <laughs> So uh, on Christmas Eve, we were busy with all this stuff going on at church. My mom called to say that they'd both come down with the flu and, and they'd have to spend the evening in their hotel. Um, and then Christmas morning came and went. They're obviously still sick, uh, too sick to get out and about. So we started to just kind of make a joke out of it and laugh about the fact that, you know, the, the whole trip was being spoiled. But somehow they managed to come all the way out here just to get the flu and have to stay in their hotel. Um, but we made a joke out of it, trying to keep spirits up. But a few days later... My mom was on the mend, but dad seemed to be getting 
worse. Uh, one evening he uh, began to lapse in and out of consciousness and he was like hallucinating and delirious. So I drove him to the emergency room and, and weird as it all seemed at the time, even that, which sounds terribly dramatic now, I mostly suspected that, I don't know, he got a really bad case of the flu. He, you know, he would get some kind of direct medical attention. I don't, I'm not a doctor. They'd give him an IV. It always has to do with an IV or something <laughs> like that. Um, and then he'd get sorted out and he'd be back on his way to Georgia. But instead, uh, that night, the doctor told us uh, that he had about a one in four odds of surviving at all. And what was supposed to be, I think it was just going to be like a week-long visit or a 10-day visit, it carried on for months. And, and, you know, rather than a simple room at the Holiday Inn, which wasn't all that luxurious to begin with, my dad spent uh, his first visit to the Northwest in an ICU. And during that time, my family and I were in and out of the hospital every single day. Uh, we prayed over my dad. We had elders come and anoint him with oil and pray for healing. We proclaimed healing over his body, and he would get better, and then he'd get worse, and he'd get better, and he'd get worse. I mean, I'm sure if you guys have ever had someone face a, a, a complicated illness, you know what that's like. And the days started to just sort of drag on, uh, marked by desperation and agony and the tedium and the busyness of life. Just refused to let up, you know, I had still had work, the holidays were over, now I've got a new baby and the family and there's the community and the, my parents have been estranged from their home, this alien world they can't possibly <laughs> fathom because it's nothing like Georgia. Um, and they're stumbling their way through this, you know, not being at home, not being apart from their, their rest of their family and everything, instead they're living in a hospital every day. Um, but then uh, February came and after, you know, a little bit, uh, two steps forward, one step back type of thing. My dad finally got approved to fly home to Georgia. He could hardly speak at this point because his throat had been so um, damaged by this sustained thing he had going with a respirator. Uh, he had been enfeebled by weight loss, and he did have to sacrifice the impressive beard. Actually, that went like the day one. I think I have a picture of uh, him without the beard, and you didn't see him before, but he was a portly fellow. And this is him after having lost a tremendous amount of weight. And speaking of portly fellows, that's Beck uh, sitting in my lap. I don't know if you guys have seen Beck. He doesn't look quite as much like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man as he does in this photo <laughs> anymore. Um, but this is about the time when they said, actually, he's going to be okay. He can go back home. And the, the weeks of desperate stress all seemed to come to an end. You know, the, the clouds finally parted. I felt quantifiably refined in this hardship that I had faced personally. And, and honestly, I loved God more deeply. I saw him more clearly. And we had survived the thing. It was amazing. But then a few weeks later, uh, after they'd gone home, my sister called me in, uh, one evening and told me that my dad had died in his sleep. Um, and then this new cycle of suffering, more profound than the first, uh, started up out of nowhere. And there's this strange paradox situated within my personal story because the suffering that I faced had been tremendously painful and it had been costly, at least to me. This was the only great tragedy that I had known. And I found God in it. And, and hear me when I say that I did not find God behind it. I did not believe that God wanted this to happen and he made it happen to teach me something. I don't think that God ordained the sickness and death of my dad for some greater good. But even so, God met me uh, in my pain. And he did so by drawing me again and again to hope. And what I found in the random sickness and death of my dad was a chaotic evil. And the suffering and sickness itself, I found no greater meaning or purpose. But I was deeply grieved by the way that the world is so often not as it should be. Um, and the Spirit of God would often carry my imagination over the terrain of the age yet to come, you know. I, I was often given these awe-inspiring portraits of a world in which things like influenza and diabetes and sickness and death are just no more. And I saw Jesus, uh, the King, before a kingdom in which intensive care units are rendered eternally meaningless. And I was hopelessly compelled to love and adore Jesus as I fixed uh, my heart on the great hope of the gospel. Because, you know, what else could I possibly do? You know, for hope for me, it was not uh, uh, in, in the alleviation of my suffering, but it was in the gratitude that I had for finding God in it. But since I had known no great loss before it, the opportunity to seize the integrity of my suffering escaped me. During those months, I was, uh, I was beautifully surrounded by the prayers of my friends and the thoughtful inquiries of people who cared very deeply. It was one of the first times in my life that I felt like, oh, this is why followers of Jesus are supposed to live in community, because I was surrounded on all sides by people ready to meet any need and to pray and to keep pressing on with me. 
But as time wore on, I became uh, exhausted by repeating every new prognosis a dozen times every single day. Updates about my own mental and emotional well-being became increasingly canned and superficial because it's just so hard to say, I, I don't even know what I think. I can't tell you what I think. And the endurance trial became entirely frustrating. I, I myself was not the one confined to any hospital bed. Uh, my indignance moved from this great exasperation with evil itself to one focused on the toll that the entire ordeal had taken on my own flow and my own time and my own life. You know, I was thinking, I, um, to a degree selfishly at the time, why this? You know, why now? And grateful for the, the closeness of God that I was experiencing, I still thought sometimes, at what cost, man? What, why this? Is, it, is this really all worth it? Things had honestly been quite nice until this ridiculous situation had flared up to wreck it. And of course, these are all perfectly understandable dispositions given the circumstances. To suffer with integrity does not in any way mean shutting ourselves off to the messiness of our own emotions. But I believe there was a place where I, I might have channeled even those often self-preserving emotions into the quest to be shaped by the fire of suffering. Not to welcome this horrible turn of events and, oh boy, I get to suffer, but forced into this dark room to use that time there well, or to, in the language of the letter we just read, to bear up under the pain of unjust suffering. And to do so unafraid. You know, during those arduous weeks, the only time I was not afraid was when I was distracted, you know, enough to forget my fear. Of course, fear itself is not inherently wrong. With, with a loved one in an ICU, who wouldn't be at least a little afraid? Fear is a normal, healthy human response. But there's a difference between, you know, an, a normal, innate sense of apprehension when faced with uh, a potentially horrible outcome and being crippled by that which is beyond our control. But for me, fear became, you know, a, a monster simply too horrible to grapple with. So I ran from it with distractions. I set my mind on anything and everything else. And I think it, uh, maybe every single one of them were actually very good things. There were things like work and, and family and friends. But I didn't use those things as a place with which to process and face my fear. I, I used those things as a means to run from my fear, to avoid my fear. And to think of it now, I don't believe that I was wrong to be afraid. I do believe that there was a place to acknowledge my fear and to wrap it up in a greater, more profound fearlessness and say, yes, I'm absolutely afraid of what may come, but I am not afraid of the ultimate future to which we are en route. And it's there that hope becomes fearlessness. And this is another paradox. Our small apprehension bows before our great obstinance. Yes, I am afraid, but my mind is fixed on a future whose light burns my fear away. The things I love can be taken from me, yes, but the thing that is ultimate in all the world never can. And it may seem arrogant to say, but I felt a special camaraderie with Jesus in my suffering. A little bit of what Bethany was talking about just a moment ago. In this time of, of pain, I was given this small shared experience with Jesus who knew suffering so deeply and who, I believe, knows suffering now and participates in us, with us and vice versa. Jesus who is grieved by evil and who the scriptures tell us is indignant towards sickness and suffering. He was made closer and, and more knowable to me in my own pain. He was anything but aloof or unanswering. I actually felt, in a sense, the arms of Jesus around me. Who could understand my pain with any more familiarity than Jesus himself? I felt the presence of Jesus, and not, not as this like helpless bystander um, that, yeah, you're there, but you're not doing anything. And I, and I didn't feel him as the mysterious cause behind my suffering. Oh, God, you're putting me through this, but why? But I felt Jesus there as someone more grieved by the situation than even I could be actively working for the good in each unpredictable moment of every passing day. And after it all, after a frustrating story that in the end bow, bowed before the cruel randomness of death, I eventually learned to mourn what had taken place and celebrating what's to come, the renewal of all things, including my dad. 
And the promise of redemption is, is more than just plucky optimism. It's more than the American dream. It's more than life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It has, it has little, if anything, to do with blind, ignorant faith. When, when you've seen God's relentless tendency to bring good out of evil, you see his face more clearly and know his character with more intimacy. And so we hope based on what we actually have seen, resolute in the knowledge of Jesus' great concern for subverting even the ugliest, most heinous evil for good. And to see him lead me forward in my pain is like this beautiful foreshadowing of how he will lead all the world out of its suffering on a coming day when he follows through to completion his great promise, look, I am making everything new. Yeah, in my own uh, story, my season of suffering or pain happened um, when I was a teenager, or started, I should say, when I was a teenager, uh, which is about three years ago. So, huh. hey, you were right. They laughed. They she did. was excited was about like, that one. That She's funny. like, they're going to laugh at funny that Funnier, but um, I'm a pastor's kid, and I grew up uh, in a family with, uh, like, like Josh was saying, a little bit of a charmed life with parents who genuinely loved Jesus a ton. They weren't those, like, weird pastor people, but they were decently normal. Um, we did have to listen to a ton of Petra and Keith Green uh, a lot on a record player. Uh, we weren't allowed to listen to secular music, um, which I didn't mind, like, for the most part, until I started going to sing some karaoke things. And I realized there's a period from 1985 to the year 2000 that I have no understanding of music whatsoever. It's a shame because that's about when it ended. I know good. it, man. And I mean, I just, you should see me. I'm like swaying and clapping, pretending like I know, but I don't actually know. Um, anyway, my parents were the real deal, and uh, they did a great job serving in the church together. Uh, and they did so in, in more than just that Sunday gathering kind of way. They, um, they genuinely lived out. Uh, what they they taught us. Um, And before my mom got into Jesus, uh, she was a dancer. um, And to clarify, she was a ballet dancer. Um, Sometimes people are like, I'm like, I never even thought about that. Um, She was pretty good, too. She was good enough to dance professionally uh, before marrying my dad. And I have, like, these great memories of uh, watching my mom. I was, like, five in a dance studio. And she was on point and just being beautiful, alone, just kind of working it out on the floor. And uh, she reminded me of, like, ballet Barbie, you know? I was like, that's my mom. And I just remember feeling uh, really proud. Because it's cool when your mom can actually, like, move her body after having a few of you. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm impressed by that now. As a grown-up, I'm like, wow, that's really good. Uh, Anyway, so uh, we moved uh, to Florida uh, when I was seven. And my dad was asked uh, to be a pastor at a church that my mom had grown up going to. Um, So the whole family was super stoked about that. And the first five or six years of living in Florida were really awesome and normal. Um, My mom and dad led on in the church like they normally do. We went to Disney World a lot, um, which is, I think, exceptionally better than Disneyland. Sorry. And um, if we couldn't go to Disney World, then we'd go to the beach. Um, So it was a pretty pretty smashingly charming life. And I know it's hard to imagine, but... It was pretty good. Um, when I was 11, uh, my mom started, so she had kind of taken a break. When we moved to Florida, she had kind of taken a break from the dance world. Um, and when I was like 11, she slowly started to get back into it. Um, and from the, the dance uh, studio kind of world, she kind of got into local theater. And believe it or not, uh, the wonderful city of Daytona Beach has a bustling theater scene. And uh, she thrust herself uh, into that. Uh, I'm the youngest of three, so at 11, I was like, sort of functionally like I could feed myself and do that kind of thing. So my mom wasn't freaking out that we would die if she left us alone. So uh, she spent a lot of time investing uh, in the theater at that point. Um, And her investment uh, wasn't simply uh, inspired by her love for dance, though that's what we kind of assumed at the the get-go. It turns out that being a pastor's wife uh, at our church was a really hard thing, uh, especially for my mom. And in a lot of ways, she was super isolated and lonely. Uh, ministry and leadership um, does that sometimes, and if you don't put effort towards community, uh, it can kind of become an all-encompassing well of discouragement, which is where my mom kind of found herself. Um, on top of my mom's loneliness, um, there were some women at the church uh, who had been mean to her. Um, I'm still not exactly sure what happened. I don't think I ever need to know, but I know that there were some like harsh things said about her. And in my mom's world, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, So we didn't know it at the time, but my mom was running away. 
uh, dance and theater became the place where she felt loved and seen and known. And it also became the place where she forgot who she was uh, and was alone a lot and believing a ton of, of lies. Um, so all of this, there's a lot more to it, but um, led to like a sort of, <laughs> we don't even know what to call it these days, but like a mental, emotional, spiritual breakdown. <laughs> and um, it was that breakdown uh, that led to her leaving our family altogether. And people always joke about um, people running away with the circus. And when they do, I always think about my mom. Um, because that's what it felt like. It felt that crazy that your mom would run away for, you know, hello Dolly. So um, it was a weird, unexplainable and unreasonable thing, but traumatic thing at that. Uh, My mom left in the spring of 2001, and uh, I was 14 then. Um, And after she left, this is what was so weird, so that was really bad, it felt really bad. And when I mean left, I mean like packed up her stuff and and left. Um, Left our city and the whole area in which we lived. Um, And a lot of bad things happened after she left. So it seems like her leaving kind of set off this weird domino effect. Have you noticed that when you're in pain? It's not just like one thing, it's like nine things. Anybody? (laughs) I'm like, yeah, Uh, that was us. Um, So not only had I lost my mom with all the emotions that that entails at like 14, which you're like, I don't know how to do stuff as a girl, you know? Um, uh, My sister uh, has Crohn's disease. and, well, actually, I think she's totally healed, so I want to speak that out. But uh, she, at the time, had Crohn's disease. And was, uh, right after mom, just like a month after my mom had left, was hospitalized. Um, and was in a ton of pain and was so sick that they said she could have died. Um, and it was like, so it was like that happened, and there was like multiple weeks of surgeries and lots of time in the hospital. Uh, and then even when she was on her way to recovery, there was a ton of stuff that made that road really long and arduous and hard. Um, so then on top of that, uh, my dad, obviously, being a pastor, should, he needed a moment to not be a pastor for a while because stuff was really crumbling at home. So he had to tell our pastor this is what's going on and resigned from the church. Um, and though, honestly, I mean, I could just sing a thousand praises. It went really well, the, the, probably the best story in the world of, of how the church could have responded to us. Um, it was still, for us, laced with a ton of humiliation and a ton of shame. Um, particularly because we were like a standard, you know, and I don't mean that like piously or religiously. I just mean we really, our family really cared about that, about expressing Jesus, and, and it felt like, man, we had failed uh, in some way. So there's, there's all that, and then the final domino was my dad's job. So he has a master's degree from a seminary, and like he's super smart, and he can edit anything. He really cares about journalism. Um, uh, but he couldn't get a job anywhere in Daytona Beach. It was super weird, um, except for at Chick-fil-A, which, you know, if you're going to have a job, do it at Chick-fil-A. Um, but that meant he didn't make enough money to support us. And so my brother and I had to get jobs to help uh, support the family, and I was like 15, 16. And I don't tell you that to evoke sympathy. A lot of you work really hard and have worked way harder than I have. Um, in fact, I don't even like to share that, but I, I just tell you that to kind of help paint the picture Uh, So you can get an idea of what those years were like. I just remember I had like this routine ongoing in my head of like, you just, you wake up and you do your quiet time because that's what you were, that's what you're trained to do. And then you go to school and you come home and you walk to work and you work and you come home and then you make sure dinner's made and the laundry's done and the house is cleaned up. Then you do your homework. Then you go to bed and you do it over again every day. It was like, I just did that cycle, I think for like three years, you know? Um, so so um, the, the real banner over our season was survival and chaos. And uh, we wore that <laughs> day in and day out uh, for a long time. Um, so it was seven years before I saw my mom again, um, so from 14 to 21. Um, and that's another story, and I'll, I'll share a little bit about that in a minute, but it's a really good one. So I hope we can talk more about that at some point. Um, but, but like Josh, suffering was a really foreign concept to me before uh, all of that happened. But in a moment, just like it always comes, an impertinent, lousy, crappy, low moment, the blow of suffering slapped me and my family across the face, and I had to decide at 14, at 11, in that time period, what I would do, what I believed, and to whom I would turn. And I'm not trying to be super braggy here, but 
I've always been really good at uh, hoping, for, hoping for things. Like, I'm just this eternal optimist. I'm always like, glass full, man. Yeah, always full. It's so good. And I just have it. I'm like, we could, I remember we used to go look at houses when I was little, like those fancy new ones that people build, you know. I'd be like, we're just going to get this house. And my parents were like, what are you talking about? I'm like, we could get this house. It's like a million square feet, you know. Anyway, y'all could probably buy a million square foot house back where I'm from, but not so much here. So anyway, I love rooting for the underdog. From a very young age, I believed anything could happen. Perhaps it was the Disney influence so strongly over my life. I don't know. Um, but it, I was really good at it. Um, my parents did a, a great job of teaching us um, from the time we were really tiny, I mean really tiny, um, about the kingdom of God about it being totally real. They always told us that God had a different economy than we do and that things that seemed really hard aren't with Jesus. Um, things that seemed impossible um, could always be made possible if you just asked Jesus to help you. <laughs> like they were teaching that over and over again. Um, so in my heartache and in my loss, this truth and reality was ever before me, buried really deep some days, but still present not because I'm spiritual and not because my family is overly spiritual, but because God taught me. Uh, he really taught it to me when I was young, and my parents did too. So parents, here's a little exhortation. Jam that crap in their heads, and, you know, as much as you can while they're small because it really matters. Um, was I discouraged often and angry and lost and, and all that weird stuff? Yes, almost daily, but... Hope came easy for me as I thought of the way God took care of my family all throughout my life. Not, not once, not twice, not three times um, did I see God give us a car when, we, we, when our cars died. Like constantly people were just throwing cars at us. I just remember thinking, we're in a station wagon and now we're in this weird big Buick thing. They always smelled like old women, but we always had them. You know, like my mom died, here's a car. You know, we, all, we were the ones getting them, so thank you. In fact, honestly, uh, my car has died, well, anyway, it's a long story, but a lot of times since I've lived in Portland, and I just kept thinking, I guess you just keep asking God for cars. I got like seven cars within a seven-year period, and I just was like, I guess that's how you get cars. You just ask God, so go at it. It's not, by the way. Yeah. I really didn't know how to do it. I was like, don't we just ask God, and he gives it to us? Um, Another thing, my aunt... It's a joke. It's a joke. It's totally a joke. My aunt was healed... uh, totally healed after being diagnosed with AIDS. I remember that very strongly, like, in our family um, pretty early on. And um, God also provided for my family a dog who didn't lick her shed. So we just considered ourselves super blessed, and, uh, and we were. You are an optimist. I mean, I am, man. I love those dogs. Anyway, hope is about believing God will come through. And I had learned that, like, throughout my small little life, I had believed and learned that from my parents and from what I saw in the church. And it was his kindness and grace that taught me about that reality years before my hardship hit. And I know it's hard to believe because I'm so sweet and even-keeled and tempered. But I can, at times, get a little feisty and mad about stuff. Just, like, rarely, but it happens. Um, I can get cranky pretty quickly, actually, if I'm not fed or the temperature isn't right. And I am particularly impatient in the car, so please forgive me if I'm shouting at you. Just pretend I'm singing, to a song, uh, singing a song behind you with my arms up like this. A lot of times like this. Um, I, I say that to say when my mom left, um, my response was no different. Um, I remember one time I was so overwhelmed, I think I was like 15, with my anger and my grief and my loss. And I remember I had been doing laundry a ton <laughs> for my brother and my dad, which was like a good experience of learning how to be a wife. Though I'm not one yet, but I think I'll be really good at it. Um, uh, I threw, I had the laundry basket and I threw it at my dad. So that might have taken me off the table for a husband with that. But I just remember I was so overcome, so angry. And I really wasn't good at processing my feelings then. And suffering, one of the things I learned is that suffering has a way of taking your words from you. Um, and, and there was little comfort in that season from year to year for us. And things were very raw and very hard. Um, comfort in that season was marked by tiny whispers and just enough money to eat for the week. And that made me mad. Um, why couldn't God just give us a little more? Why, um, when we weren't asking for much, couldn't he just respond and provide? He has all the money in the storehouses of heaven. I mean, these are the things I was, like, taught. Couldn't he do that? And if he couldn't do it for me, then why couldn't he do it for my dad or my sister or my brother? And, and listen, I did my best to trust God during this, that season. But if I'm honest, um, 
It came uh, by way of honest shouting, of a lot of crying, and by throwing laundry baskets. <laughs> um, despite my failure in walking with integrity and trust during that season, I found God really near, like Josh was saying, close. He was so close, even when I was shouting at him and when I had tons of tears, and in his nearness, he not only comforted me, but he taught me that he was who he said he was, that he was gracious and forgiving, and he was bigger and more wise than I would ever um, be. And, um, and that's the thing about the suffering thing. You get to learn a lot of interesting things about God, and I learned about this bigness idea of God, um, and the more I realized that God was big, um, the less afraid I became. So we talk about not being fearful when we're in suffering. Um, I always think about Jeannie from Aladdin when I think about this. Like, you know, when he bust out of the um, lamp, and he's like, huge. He's like, totally big. Um, do you guys so know what I'm talking about? So much Disney. Jeez. I know it, man. It's so, so strong on me now. Um, and I think, I think that's how I imagined God in that season, that he became really big when I needed him to but also really low and small when I needed him to. Um, and he gets to show us, and he does show us his bigness when we need to know he's able to overcome the obstacle that we're walking in. Um, like I mentioned earlier, and to no credit of my own, I'm very good at hope, but the flip side of that is that hope always is doing a dance uh, with this counterpart fear. They're always like kind of going back and forth. And when you're hurting like I was, uh, you can't help but ask questions like, is my life going to be like this forever? Um, what if we all lose our jobs and then we can't eat food? Like, how are we going to do that? What if uh, we run out of money or what if my sister dies? These are like the questions I was asking. And with every question I'd asked, hope was losing its footing. That's why it's really powerful <laughs> with what we lean into and what we ask and where we stay. And uh, only to be trampled this this loose footing um, over by fear. So over and over again, I was just feeling crippled um, by the what if questions and what could be. Uh, I have a friend named Sarah, and she's a, a therapist, and she's always talking about how people in pain need to feel safe. <laughs> and that's what I needed. <laughs> I was so afraid, and I didn't feel safe. Um, I would work a ton of extra hours at the jobs that I was at. I would change my behavior a ton so people would like me and wouldn't want to leave me because I thought that was the problem. I would hang on to relationships tighter and longer than I should have, and I would commit to myself to trust no one. That was my answer. That's how fear impacted me. And I knew God said I didn't have to be afraid, but I couldn't quite get my eyes off the waves that were smashing over uh, what felt like my world. Um, now, in all my suffering, it wasn't all bad, um, and I'd hate for you to think that I was like, I'm totally a Debbie Downer about all this stuff, because um, that isn't true. Uh, the suffering I experienced was catalytic. It was life-changing, and that's what Peter's talking about in this passage. Um, there are a million beautiful and good and incredible things that happen amidst my suffering. You ask me, I can give you like 15 in a moment. Um, how the body of Christ rallied around my family, how people fought for me, how women took me prom dress shopping and bought me yearbooks and never let me go without. There wasn't a second I went without. God took care of me in the most tangible and beautiful of ways because that's who he is. Um, and listen, I am right here tonight, oddly enough, in the Pacific Northwest, doing what I'm doing, caring for women in the church, and will continue to do that because of what happened to me in that season. But the most important thing was the thing that Peter talked about in uh, the most important thing that happened to me, the most meaningful thing that happened to me when all this hit, is the thing that, that he talked about in chapter four, that thing he called participation. Um, it can sound abstract if you've never experienced it, for, but for those of you who have, you've suffered and you've identified with Jesus in your suffering, if you've even skimmed the edge of this concept, you are and will forever be changed. When his name is mentioned, something changes and is different, and you should be if you've identified with that. And in our pain, um, we have had a choice, and we do have a choice about how we're going to handle it and to whom we will turn. And thankfully, the truth about that season is that I, with a few bumpers, you know, like when you're bowling and those, the kids have to use the bumpers, with a lot of bumper people, I just ran headfirst into Jesus. That's what I did. Not because I'm awesome, because people kept shoving me that way. Um, and I was mad sometimes, yep. And I was fearless uh, most days, no. Nope, I was a weak, 
baby, um, but I did. I, I ran straight into Jesus. And, and a woman mentor, who mentored me gave me this book by Max Licato that I still really love that helped me understand what was happening because while all this bad stuff was happening, all this weird good Jesus stuff was happening and I couldn't, there was no name I could put to it because um, Jesus came really close and in, in some way I, I could uh, for the first time in a really small and I don't know, probably really human way, imagine as I read about the life of Jesus what he might have felt. I remember it was the first time when I read the scriptures and all of a sudden something was activated in me when he spoke and when he was saying stuff because I felt it. You know, I thought about what it might have felt like for him when he was in Gethsemane. And he's like, just stay awake. And they're like, you know, like totally worthless, which is what I would be. But, um, but I was thinking like, you must have felt so mad and so sad and I just remember thinking, like, he gets some of that, betrayed and misunderstood the things I felt. And how um, his father, in this, when you read in the Gospels even, was the only one who could truly understand his circumstances and his heart. And I learned to see that God um, uh, was that way too. And that changed my whole life. Now, it's incredibly cheesy to say it, but I will say it. I fell so weird, totally in love with Jesus uh, during the worst season of my life. And I felt like we were participating in something together. And when I hurt, I was truly only satisfied knowing he knew how it felt and that he was hurting too. And that he was with me and he wouldn't forsake me and he was the only one who wouldn't leave me. And I finally got it. It's all that God with us stuff. It's the first time it became real to me. Now, I'm going to end this because I know y'all are like, hey, we got to go to Red Robin. I'm with you. I got to go there too. Um, I need a Diet Coke and, and some sweet potato fries. That's not what we do. Well, okay. I, well, I'd like to go there. Um, this has got to be the best part of my, my whole, all the suffering. And it doesn't work out this way for everyone. It's not always going to work out uh, this way for, for me either. Um, I'm going to try to keep it short. But to this day, and again, if we stopped and we had coffee or you just asked me as I walked out the door, um, what happened, I would say I am seeing and feeling and um, reaping tangible, I mean really tangible, not some ethereal thing, but tangible redemption uh, to every single year that was lost through my suffering. I, I could explain it in a million different ways. These braces on my teeth and other things point to that. God is redeeming everything. Um, in, in the Old Testament, there's this book, Joel, and it's in chapter 2, and he talks about redeeming the years that were lost or that had been eaten by bugs, but that's weird. So redeeming the years that were lost, um, and it isn't you know, literal, obviously, because that would be weird, but um, it's a beautiful way to say that he restores everything, every single thing whether here or in the age to come, but he promises he's going to restore everything, give back to you, even I would argue like a hundredfold uh, what you lost. Um, uh, never once uh, in that seven-year period of having no contact with my mom um, being, or being gone, same thing, uh, did I ever imagine that we'd have a relationship again. In fact, I had worked through all the scenarios of blocking her from my wedding as though that, well, you know, that was going to happen. That was going to happen at 24, so. Um, that didn't happen, but I had thought through, like, my graduation even. I don't want her, to, I don't ever want her to come near me, around me, nothing. I was not, like, holy and, like, I just want to reconcile. I was like, no way, God, we're done. Moving on to somebody else. I mean, I was there. Uh, but on my 21st birthday, I was at college in this small podunk town of Graceville, uh, Florida. And um, I got a letter from my mom. I mean, I was like, <gasps> um, saying she wanted to see me. And I thought, no way, no how, not ever. Um, and I had a lot of angry conversations with God, um, with my family. Um, but after I had uh, wrestled a lot and prayed a lot, I had scraped up enough courage and trust uh, to meet up with my mom. And it was all like, okay, God, what do you want to do? And it wasn't like I was some sweet pea rap running up to see my mom. I was like, hey. You know what I mean? I'm like, what are you going to buy me? Are we having, you know, uh, it was the most awkward experience of my entire life. Um, but that was 10 years ago. And uh, it's taken a lot of time and a lot of healing uh, and lots of confession, lots of repentance, um, lots of forgiveness, and a lot of rebuilding of trust. But with a ton of joy and a ton of confidence, I say to you that my mom is truly one of my best friends today. I talk to her every single day. Um, well, I mean, sometimes we text, but we're in communication every day. Otherwise, she thinks I'm dead. What is it with the moms thinking you're dead if you don't text immediately with six emoticons? <laughs> you know, I don't know. And she is um, by far uh, my biggest fan. 
Um, and God has done the impossible because um, that's what he loves to do, the impossible. So uh, the truth is um, we're, we're going to end this gathering. And, um, and when we do, many of you are going to be thrown back uh, into the trench- trenches of your suffering because some of you are in it. You're going to get in the car and you're going to remember that things are just as hard as they have ever been. The service didn't radically change your world and make everything shiny and better. Um, And while you might desire the nobility and hope that Peter speaks about in this book, you're still faced uh, with prayers that hit the ceiling, the vortex of pain that you feel, the disorientation of the loneliness your present circumstance demands. And that's going to be hard. And others of you, um, you might be in seasons of peace. And I think I'm in a season of peace and I feel really grateful. Um, But you may rightfully leave here encouraged by all the truths that we've shared or maybe our stories or or maybe none of it. Um, And while suffering may not presently be upon you or on your doorstep, the exhortation is no different than it is for those of you who are in pain tonight. And I think our exhortation to you would be that you're suffering, what you're walking through, the disappointment, the heartache, the loss, or all that may be coming, no matter where you're at on your journey, um, God is with you. And he is, whether you can see it or not see it, working against the evil you're facing, and he's not willing it. And no matter how dire your circumstances, if you'll let him, if you will invite him in and let him, God will give you all the grace you need to endure it. And while... uh, Miraculously, at the same time, he'll provide for you hope, fearlessness, if you'll let him, participation, if you'll let him, redemption, in all that feels so convoluted and so hard and so dark. And um, maybe your story uh, is not unlike mine and Josh's, uh, in that it happened in the past, but you're still dealing with it uh, to this day. And there's a lot of us in here who are still, it's not like one and done, my mom's back and everything's awesome. You know, there was a lot of time that my mom missed, a lot of really critical moments in my life that I needed her for. Um, and, and, and that's how it goes often, you know. And make no mistake, even when we suffer well, healing, uh, this other part of suffering can be a process I'm in counseling every single week and have been for the last seven years. Uh, and boy, do I love it. I'm a huge fan about talking. I mean, just I get to talk about myself Jeez, for an yeah. hour and a half. Well, I, I mean, I love it. I'm like, it's just about me? Okay. Uh, let's talk more. Um, Josh, he's in some therapy too, getting that on him. And uh, we're doing our best to work out uh, and work towards emotional health because we really do, or we are, at least we're beginning to understand that God wants to and can heal and redeem every part of us that was impacted, past, present, or future, by our pain and our suffering. And, you know, when, when Bethany and I were talking about this and we were thinking about uh, the way that it stands to reason the room is divided into two camps, however big either camp might be, those who are facing some sort of pain in the moment and those who aren't at this moment, but they will be or they have been in the past. So for many of you here this evening um, that aren't in the dark place right now, that you know you aren't in the midst of some great suffering, maybe you haven't yet faced some great tragedy in your life at all, um, but remember, we all know what it means to hurt. Uh, do not discount yourself if you haven't lost a parent or you haven't faced cancer or some other thing. And, and we will know what it means to hurt again in our lives in, in, in ways seemingly very small or in ways that we honestly cannot yet fathom. And there's no arena in which we might practice the art of suffering. It's like the unfortunate membership to a club no one wants to join. You can't be in it until you're in it. But You can, in a sense, prepare your heart and your mind by relinquishing the control that you hope to have over everything in your life and by reordering the things that you love. Because it's only after we've lost everything that we're free to do anything. And so we embrace this idea of community. And it isn't because it's a novel concept. It's because that's the way the follower of Jesus faces suffering, not alone, not in isolation, but within the family of God. And we seek more and more with each passing day to hand over that which is beyond our control. And we learn to know, not fear, but know that pain is inevitable, 
but so is the redemptive work of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And we carry those two truths in tandem, embracing them both and running from neither one. And though we, we can mitigate suffering, it's not a bad thing to do, but we cannot keep it back forever. And that's okay. Let it come because it cannot destroy and God himself will use even the pain that we endure, the pain he neither wanted nor willed to form us for good. So with that in mind, let's pray together.